There was a theme, repeated theme in movies when I was growing up about the one, the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? It seemed to be something that people talked about a lot. I don't think movies talk about that so much anymore. Now it's about how many things can Thor pick up or how many, how many, how high can Superman leap or whatever it is. But there was a time there where as a theme of the question was, what is the meaning of life? Who can tell me what the meaning of life is? 42, everybody says 42, all the nerds in the room say 42. We're not having quite as much of a nerd fest this week as last week. But Douglas Adams taught us that the meaning of life is 42. And of course, other people have, the problem was no one understood the answer. But I think there has been a really good answer to the question of what is the meaning of life. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, the question says, what is the chief end, chief end of man? What is the chief end of humanity? What are we about? And the Westminster group got together and said, the chief end of people is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the next time someone says to you, what is the meaning of life? You could say to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think that's a really good answer to what is the meaning of life. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Psalms, and we've seen some different themes starting with W, found in the Lord's words. We talked about wisdom. Talia spoke to us about the wisdom we find in the Lord's words. Last week, we spoke about worship. The worship is the normal and best response to the revelation of God's name and nature. God is the source of all wisdom, and he is the proper object. That is, he is the right direction of our worship. When we consider the vastness of creation and then the intimate and delicate balance of creation, we are brought to worship the greatness and the wisdom of our God. Today we turn to another theme, another major theme in the Psalms, wonder. Not so much the wonder of creation, we spoke about that already, but more the I wonder why, or the how come, or why do things like this happen? We are creatures of imagination and thought. We do not rely on mere instinct to make decisions. We are designed to think, to consider, to judge, to speculate. And that's okay. Sometimes I wonder about the future. Before my children were born, I wondered about whether they'd be boys or girls, what kind of personality they would have. Even now, Talia and I just the other night were looking at baby Mabel and going, who is she like? in our family. We've got so many kids now that we're thinking we're getting doubles up. Is she like Celeste in her calmness? Is she like Archer in her friendliness? Is she like Frederick in her thoughtfulness? What is she going to be like? And of course, the answer is she's going to be like Mabel. She's just going to be her. She looks, you can hear me saying her voice and she's looking at me, her name and looking at me strangely. As our children grow up, we wonder about what kind of a world they'll inherit, what kind of work they'll do, what kind of family they'll have, what will they do with their futures. Often we wonder about what will happen next, what will happen next week. 
Or we wonder about things that have already happened. And we wonder why did that happen? Why did that occur? Just this week I found myself wondering about one of my son's actions and wondering whether his actions were a result of his personality or his mother's parenting. And my parenting. Did he do that because that's just who he is or did he do that because we taught him to do that or he's watched us do that and he's copied us? We wonder and we contemplate about so many things. Things right now, things in the future, things in the past. We have so many questions. And the Psalms are full of wondering, full of questions, full of concerns about the future and questions about the past. And it's okay to ask questions. In fact, God encourages it. Now, I can remember as a teenager growing up in the church being told by people that there are just too many questions and how many questions was a sign of doubt. And there are some things that just have to be accepted by faith, things that just are. And I found that really dissatisfying, and I still do. I can understand why people answer that way. Usually they just want the annoying kid to be quiet. And if you spend 10 minutes with a child who's decided to ask the but why game to everything you say, you'll soon run out of pleasant things to say and pleasant ways to respond. And sometimes, just sometimes, God does say to us, you're just going to have to trust me on this one when we ask a particularly difficult question because God does not tell lies. And sometimes the true answer to a question will take an eternity to answer and we would never really understand it anyway. Like, why did our friend's cancer not go away even as we prayed and asked fervently? We look at situations around the world and we wonder why was that particular, why were those people killed in that way and those people spared? Why is it that that wicked man seems to profit and grow powerful? Why are honest and trustworthy people treated so poorly? Why? 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 And those are legitimate questions. We're encouraged in the scriptures to ask, to think, to consider, to debate, to talk with God and with each other. And too many people have been turned away from the faith by short, unthinking answers, calling on people just to have more faith. Let's consider one of the places in the Psalms where these questions are asked. We've read it already this morning in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins with the question, why? Why? It's a thought that so many people have. We desire explanation. We want answers. We want the universe to make sense, to be clear to us. And we want someone to be in control. Or because we want to be in control. We want answers because we want to be in control. The rest of Psalm 2 will make some bold claims about this coming Messiah, about Jesus the one who will tell us to come to him when we are heavy burdened. 
He will give us peace and rest and help. And so the psalm opens. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? We go on and read. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying the things that they say. The opening lines wonder at the audacity of the nations and their leaders in plotting against God and his anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed. That is, they were marked with oil to show that they had a special task to complete for God. And the word for anointed is translated into the Greek as the word Christ, the anointed one of God. So here, as God is talking about his son, his anointed one, he's pointing towards Jesus. God's response to the plotting of these kings of the earth against his son is laughter. He considers their plans as absurd and as nothing. He doesn't worry about what the kings of the earth are plotting. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen next. And God announces that he set his king in place on Zion, the holy hill of God where the temple is, where Jerusalem is. God says, my king is there and he will not be moved by the plots of all the world. And then we read on in the psalm that God makes some promises to this anointed king. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father, or this day I have begotten you. These are declarations made beyond that of any earthly king. This is a psalm of promise to a future king, a king who will come to bring peace and conquer the world through love. The last verses change the focus of the psalm. Back to the kings and leaders of the earth who've plotted against God and against his anointed. They say, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. The advice to the kings of the earth is to stop their plans and instead embrace and submit to the new king. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And even more, this, a promise. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, who put their trust in him. Who are we trusting? Who are we taking refuge in? The anointed one, the the son of God. Psalm 2 starts with this question, why? Asking, why are these people plotting against God? And then gives an attempt at an answer. Explain that their plotting is not worth anything. It will all fall through. God is in charge at the end. Why do these kings bother? Why do they try to trip God up? What are they trying to achieve? Do they think they can beat God? Last Sunday, I got to play a game of chess with my son, Rupert. I was doing some ironing, preparing the school uniforms for the week, and Rupert comes and says, hey, Dad, do you want to play chess? Sure, Rupert, I'd love to play chess. He sets up the kit there beside me as I'm ironing away, and he starts making moves, and in between ironing things, I make moves. We're playing chess together, and all of a sudden he bursts out into tears. And I say, what are you crying for? He says, because I'm going to lose. And I said, yes, you are going to lose. And we kept playing and he he burst into tears again. I always lose. I say, yes, that's true. (laughs) 
I'm sure there are seven-year-olds in the world who could beat me at chess, but Rupert isn't one of them, not just yet. And I said to him at some point, why are you crying? Did you expect that if you and I were to play a proper game of chess that you would beat me? Why are you plotting against me? Do you think you're smarter than me? Have you played more chess than I? And then I said to him, Rupert, I need to beat you thoroughly so you'll learn to be better. If I let you win, you'll think you're great. Whereas if I beat you convincingly, but do it in a friendly way, hopefully, we'll have a good game next week and the week after that again and again, and eventually he will beat me. Here, these kings of the earth are playing chess with God and they expect they're going to win. And the only proper response to that is, you're crazy. You can't beat him. You can't outsmart him. There's a day that's coming where, where Rupert will beat me at chess, but there is, coming, there is never coming a day when the kings of the earth will defeat God at any game you choose to name. Why do they conspire? Why do they plot in vain? Why are they plotting against the God who created the whole universe? There are lots of other why questions in the Psalms. Many of them are directed at God himself, asking God questions. Why? 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 In Psalm 10.1, the psalmist says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist is annoyed that right when having an all-powerful God to back you up in a fight would come in handy, God seems absent. He's wandered off. And the writer finds himself in all kinds of trouble. And this is a repeated theme in the Psalms. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? Psalm 42 verse 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? 43 says, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, repressed by the enemy? Psalm 44, three in a row here. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject me forever. Asking God, where are you when I need you? And Psalm 74, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. These Psalms and other Psalms ask the question of directing at God, asking many similar questions. God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? Why have you forgotten me? Why don't you take your hand out of your pockets and slap that guy right in the face? And these are legitimate questions. They deserve consideration. And these Psalms don't just give a simple answer or tell people to have more faith. They wrestle with the struggle. They have the conversation. These are questions that I have had in my life. Where are you, God? Why have you left me or seem to have left me? It's okay to ask those questions. There are other questions in the psalm that ask why. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? Or why should I fear when evil days come? 
when wicked deceivers surround me. We ask questions about the wickedness we see in the world and why God tolerates it. And then there are questions in the Psalms about depression and mourning and struggle and internal questions. And so often the psalmist talks to himself and says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Sometimes we need to preach that question to ourselves. Ask ourselves what's going on, what's really happening. The Psalms ask big questions. And so do other books of the Bible in this middle section that we call the wisdom books. In the middle of the book, in the middle of the Bible, we have these wisdom books that ask these sorts of questions. They're about exploring the why of the universe. The book of Job is a book about a good man who loses everything. Bad things happen to a good man. And Job is left to ask the question, why? The book of Ecclesiastes is about a man who decides to try everything at least once. Different ways of living and behaving, experimenting to find meaning. And he comes to the conclusion that everything is meaningless. It can be summed up in this. Sometimes there's cake, but then you die. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes asks the question, why is life like this? The book of Proverbs is another book here in this wisdom section. It's a book of ancient wisdom that teaches common sense, talks about all kinds of challenges from relationships to friendships to business to raising children and asks Why is the universe the way it is? And then there's a book in there called the Song of Songs. And the question we ask about Song of Songs is, why is this book in the Bible at all? It's a strange book. It doesn't really seem to make any sense, except that it says that it's good to be young and in love and that sex is great fun and it's part of God's design. These books of wisdom that we find in the middle part of the Bible, what they have in common with the Psalms is that God is fine with the questions of life. He's okay with questions about life, the universe, and everything, and that he is part of the answer. And so as we read with these people struggling with these questions and debating with their friends and asking what is the meaning of life, We catch glimpses of God in the midst of that mystery. And so Job, in the midst of his pain, everything has been destroyed around him. And yet he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. Job looks at the destruction of his world, of his family, of everything he knows and holds dear and says, but in the end, God, in the end, God will make it right, and I trust in him. Ecclesiastes, in the midst of his experiments with all the things he's trying, his experiments of philosophy and theology in all the different ways and saying life is meaningless, says this. He says that God has set eternity in the human heart. And no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
In the midst of the meaningless of his life, the teacher Ecclesiastes says, God is bigger than us and we cannot understand him from beginning to end. And in Proverbs, the writer of the Proverbs, there's so many writers in Proverbs, and one of them says this, just trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. In the midst of all these mysteries, we are encouraged to ask our questions. Go to God for the answers. Are there any questions here this morning before I conclude? Are there any questions about questions? For those of you, oh, Matt, yes, go, mate. Yes. Ah, okay. Matt is asking a great question there from the Psalm, Psalm 2, um, saying about coming to God. So God is angry with those who don't do what he wants. Yes, he rebukes them and he threatens them with his great wrath. And then he says, but those, what is the verse he read? Read the verse 9, is it? Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate him with trembling. Yes, that's a great question. Um, Good question. And I want to talk about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Is that all right? Anybody know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the story of Aslan and that? It's a children's story that explains the gospel. And in that, the picture of God or the picture of Jesus is of this enormous lion. And he's a beautiful, loving, friendly, wonderful lion who if he chooses to swipe you, he'll knock you dead. And at some point, the children are talking to their friends about this great lion and it says to them, well, look, you're welcome to embrace him, but be aware he is not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. He's a God of incredible power and glory. Yes, when we come before the Lord, we can come in confidence knowing what Jesus has done for us. But when we come into the presence of God, there will be trembling. When we're really in his presence, we will acknowledge that he is much, 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 much bigger than us. And we're assured of his incredible love. But there's also some fear there, some respect there. Does that sort of make sense? Does that come part way to explaining or understanding that question? I think I'm getting a thumbs up. There's much, much, much more we could talk about that as well, what it means to fear God, to respect him, to honor him. We certainly don't want to treat God like he's our plush toy that we can punch under our arm or whatever, like he's some sort of stuffed bear. God is not a stuffed bear we carry around with us as we suck our thumbs. No, he's that big scary lion who walks with us. And he loves us and embraces us, but we still need to show some respect around him. Good question. Any other questions as well? Another question. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. These are good questions. So Noel is, is coming, yes, to the heart of those why questions. Uh, so, yes, we serve God, we honour him, we worship him, we want the best, and when we pray for things, they don't happen for us. We have this week lost our dear friend Diane, died of cancer, a faithful and beautiful woman of faith, a lovely lady, part of our church. Many people here prayed for her for many years, and yet the cancer took her in the end. Noel's expressing concern here that, yes, he's losing his eyesight and praying for it to be restored, and we continue to pray that your eyesight would be restored. There are many, many answers to that, many answers that are hard to give and hard to explain. Um, as I said a few months, a few weeks ago, the universe is a very complicated place. The story I'll tell you, Noel, is of a, a missionary lady who'd spent years working in the mission field. She came home to her home church as an old lady. She'd given her best years to the Lord, and she started to go blind. And... She started to get, she got older and older and she started to lose her sight. And one of her friends said to her, why is the Lord doing this to you? You've been a missionary. You've served so faithfully for years and now you're going blind. Why has the Lord turned his back on you? And the lady, the missionary said, all I can say is that maybe the Lord is adding the final touches to my character. Maybe the Lord is adding the final touches to my character. I cannot explain to you why some people are healed and why some people are not. I just know that the Bible says to pray that people be healed and to trust in God. And whatever circumstance happens to you, God will use it for the best if you let him. Does that make sense? God is able to take whatever circumstance we find it in and use it for his glory if we will walk with him and find that way to go ahead with that. These are good questions, but they come to the heart. Yes, we have lots of why questions. And the frustrating part of all of this is that the answer to many of our why questions is just to have more faith. The answer that so frustrated me as a teenager is sadly the right answer. <laughs> Not to every problem. Not every question. There are plenty of things that Christians believe that need to be challenged and explored and compared to what the Bible actually says. But for many other questions of why, the response from God is, I can't tell you right now, but trust me. Trust me anyway. The challenge for many people is that they don't know God well enough to trust him in those times of confusion and anger and fear and frustration. So when people come to us with the why questions and we don't have a good answer, we must not rush straight to just have faith. You know, it takes the book of Job 40 chapters of argument and debate and mourning and back and forth Besides, before Job finally decides, you know what, I'm just going to trust God. 
And we short circuit that so often when we leap to the last chapter without doing the hard work of chapters 2 through 38. We cut to the end and it does not satisfy. God is not afraid of our why questions and we should not be afraid of them either. Sometimes there are answers that other people have thought of. Sometimes there is simply no answer right now. But that doesn't make it a bad question. And sometimes the best answer we can give is, I don't know. That's a good question, Noel, this morning. I don't know. It's a good question about our sister Diane. I don't know. But I do know some things. What I do know is this. There is a God whose nature is revealed in Jesus Christ. He's the son spoken about here in Psalm chapter 2. He is the one who rules over the nations and brings the kings to nothing. And in him I find a God I can trust, even in the midst of the wise. In Mark chapter 12, we read some words of Jesus. Jesus is in the temple just before the crucifixion and people have been coming to him and asking him questions and we've talked about that before in chapter 12 when we did our journey through Mark. Here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus now asks a question back to them. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why? Why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? And Jesus quotes from this psalm. This is Psalm 110. He's quoting from its very similar language to Psalm 2, talking about this son of God, the Lord. And Jesus puts himself into those psalms and says these psalms are about me. And it says the large crowd listened to him with delight. Jesus puts himself into these psalms and says these psalms are actually about me. The prophecies and predictions there are about me, about Jesus. And if we will sit and listen to him and ask him our questions, we can do so with Delight. The song I've chosen to reflect on this morning will be unknown to most of you, but my mum's here, so she'll help me sing it. And it says, Many other things I cannot understand. All around me mystery I see, but the gift most wonderful from God's own hand. Surely it's his gift of grace to me. And the chorus says, Higher than the stars that reach eternity, broader than the boundaries of endless space, is the boundless love of God that pardoned me. Oh, the wonder of his grace. We have lots of things to ask why about. Perhaps we should ask, why does God love me? And if we can get to the depths of that, all the other whys will seem less important. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we have lots of questions. 
We want to know why. Father God, I pray that you would help us to ask those questions, that you would help us to explore those issues, that you would help us to have that conversation with you and with our brothers and sisters. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who does not just tell us to be silent and accept, but you're a God who calls on us to have faith, to have trust, to take you at your word. Father God, I thank you this morning for Jesus and his amazing powers as your son here on this earth. Father God, I thank you that Jesus never met a sickness he couldn't beat, he couldn't find a demon he couldn't overcome, but Father God, he had amazing power. Father, I pray that we would see his power at work in our midst again today and every day. And yet, Father God, those times when we are left with mystery, I pray that you would help us to trust in you, to look beyond our circumstances to who you are and what you're about. Look at the nature of Jesus, our King, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Help us to trust in his love. All these things we pray in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.